0: You're listening to The Local Maximum,
1: episode 24.
0: I think there are multiple types of intelligences. You know, there, there's this sort of computational intelligence. You know, when you talk to people, there, there's emotional intelligence. When you look at the animals around, they have different types of intelligence in order to adapt.
1: Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Time to get excited everyone, time to get excited, get really excited because the intro music is playing, that's why. All right, welcome to another episode of The Local Maximum. That's what Rob Bernstein taught me the other day, by the way. I went on his podcast called Run Your Mouth Podcast a few days ago. Awesome experience. Started out with, you know, you better get excited because the intro music is playing. You might not hear it, but trust me, it's going to be there. But seriously, check out the latest episode of Run Your Mouth Podcast after you listen to this episode of The Local Maximum, of course. Uh, It's the one called Rooftop Porch Party. This is part of comic Rob Bernstein's porch tour, where he's doing his podcast in listeners' porches, or uh, in my case, the the garden in my building here in Brooklyn. Um, I like the podcast because it's true to real-life conversation, or at least interesting conversations they have in real life some of the conversations they have in real life are kind of a real you know a real drag but they talk about they start like they talk about sandwiches and small stuff and then they talk about news and the political situation but you don't really have to be so stressed about it it's not like the kind of stuff where it's going to make you sick to your stomach Um, but you're actually going to like learn a little bit about what's going on and it cracks me up so Definitely worth your time. He did ask me about the future of AI, which is something that we're covering on this episode of the Local Maximum. We also talked about the Google story, uh, where Google is being fined a lot of money by the European Union and you know the nature of the antitrust laws that are behind it. And also some ideas for building a better dating app, which you know, coming up with product ideas like that on the fly is always a good exercise. So check out my appearance on Run Your Mouth After you do this. Okay, because today, we're talking to Christian Hubs. Christian co-hosts a podcast along with Stephen Donnelly called Artificially Intelligent. Christian is in Pittsburgh, and Stephen is in Belfast, Ireland. As it turns out, you know, I'm going to Belfast for the first time on Thursday, so very excited about that. You'll hear my next episode will be broadcast, or at least I'll upload it from Belfast. I'm, I might record parts of it from Belfast. I'll let you know if I am. Um, okay, so they cover all topics related to AI, both on the technical side and also as it connects to economics and philosophy and business. So if you like this show and you're a curious person, you know, artificial intelligent, intelligent is worth uh, checking out as part of your weekly rotation. Now, I started out on a small scale in this conversation and got bigger. So we're going to start with, you know, uh, eating your vegetables, which I define as kind of the short-term stuff. What should I be studying? What industry should I look at? Should I be uh, worried or concerned about my job? All that stuff. You know, is AI in a bubble right now? Is it going to, is the bubble going to burst? Then after that, we kind of threw caution totally out the window and looked at the big picture you know, what is the end game for AI? Is super intelligence coming? Will it replace us? Uh, is the technological singularity coming? This goes deep, my friends. Then finally, I spoke to Christian about his interest and expertise in reinforcement learning and uh, machines that can play games like Go and, and chess, which was the previous generation's Go. Uh, from his website, Christian said that he is a big economics, philosophy, and history nerd, reading a lot from the Austrian School of Economics, as well as classical history, particularly at the start of the Christian era. He studied at the Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, and the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich, Switzerland. He is currently a PhD student at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, working on data science AI, and engineering. And as I said, also an expert in reinforcement learning. Thanks for coming on, Christian. Welcome to the show. Welcome to The Local Maximum.
0: Hey, Max. Thanks for having me.
1: I know you came on a few weeks ago just for a few minutes to tell us a little bit about your show um, on the same day that uh, I was on your show. Why don't we just go over a little bit uh, what your show is about? Uh, It's called Artificially Intelligent. It is a weekly show where you talk about issues in artificial intelligence and and machine learning um, that are coming up uh, in the news and in society. Tell us a little bit about uh, where you're taking that show recently.
0: Yeah, so like you said, we run every week and we do, we shoot for, you know, 30, 45 minutes or so, and we really try to focus on how AI is impacting the economy. So we cover businesses, we cover bigger pictures, such as joblessness or automation, you know, what, what that's going to have. Um, we look at, say, VC markets and, and a bunch of other things uh, to really try to, try to see how this technology is going to change lives um, through economics. And, you know, my co-host and I, Stephen, uh, we started this, gosh back in early 2017 and we've been talking about it for a little while uh, and big reason was because both of us listen to a lot of podcasts and you know i work in in kind of doing a lot of this ai research and other things he also has a graduate degree in economics and we didn't really see anything out there that kind of hit these two areas at least very well or very consistently. And so we thought, you know what, this is something that we're both interested in. Let's try to talk about it. And um, not only that, I, you know, I come from more of an Austrian economics perspective to, to bring that in. So I think it's a little bit uh, more unique uh, than what you might find elsewhere. Uh, if you listen to, say, maybe The Economist or or Financial Times or what they might be uh, doing when they talk about some of the AI stuff. Um, you know, Stephen's been trained more in the mainstream type of uh, school, so we, ha- we were able to have some good discussions about it, and uh, yeah. yeah, I think it's a, it's a worthwhile endeavor, and uh, yeah, so anybody listening sure. wanted to check it yeah. out, check it out.
1: Th- that's very good. Did you, um, when, when you decided to start it, did you have any podcasting experience, or were you simply coming at it from a technologist experience, and this was how you wanted to um, get your content out there?
0: Yeah, so no experience whatsoever when we jumped in, and that can... So I'm always curious, like, why go.
1: choose a podcast? Why not a blog? I mean, I have my own answer on that, which is I tried the blog first and I couldn't keep up with it. But <laughs> but uh, what what made you decide, you know, podcasting is the way to go?
0: Yeah, that's definitely, you know, something I experienced too, because I, I have a, a blog that I maintain as well, but I, I don't update it nearly as much i try to do maybe say once a month but you know i think there's just a different standard typically when people look at a blog especially my blog tends to be a bit more technical where i'll you know discuss algorithms and try to do some tutorials and other things like that you know it's not really good for podcasting and and, and vice versa um so i you know, when you when you have a podcast, you can sit down, you can have a conversation, you can talk about some of these things, and it's just a I, I find it's a lower uh, barrier of entry. It's a, it's a better medium for, for discussing a, a number of topics. Whereas an article, you know, you can post it, and if it it can be just as in depth as a podcast, but I find fewer people tend to look at a lot of those articles or look at those blog posts. So. Yeah. And it's just a way to incorporate other people as well, because that's another thing we want to do is to reach out and interview people like we had you on the show and we've had other people in in, in industry. And it's just easier to kind of expand that network and talk to others on, on that format.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I found the same thing. Um, uh, what is So I assume you were a podcast fan then before coming in. You had probably listened to a bunch of podcasts. You didn't find anything. Um, uh, there, There isn't a whole lot out there on this topic, but I'm sure you were, uh, were, were there any podcasts that you were particularly a fan of that you kind of said, oh, this is a really good way of uh, getting information out there. I want to, you know, uh, I want to be like this, or at least I'm a fan of this. It's, I'm using it as inspiration.
0: Yeah. I mean, there, uh, there are plenty of actual data science podcasts that are, that have come out over the past few years. You know, one of the big ones that was out at the time, but now defunct is the uh, Partially Derivative. There's uh, This Week in Machine Learning oh, right, and AI, right. which tends to be more technical, Um, there, there's like NVIDIA, which focuses on, you know, use cases. They have the, the AI, NVIDIA AI podcast or something like that. So, you know, what you find typically out there are, are quite a few, but there are a lot that are just, are, are a lot more technical where they talk with, uh, with researchers and others about their latest research and, and such. So, um, yeah, there's, there's some of that, some of that's
1: good. And and some of that, like I'd like to do on my show, but it's, um, some of them get way too dry and technical to be something that you're going to want to listen to on your ride home or get much use out of is what i found.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like, um, you know, I, I think Sam Sherrington does a great job with the Twimble AI podcast and, you know, I've had some correspondence with him and he's, you know, it's a really, really well done, but there are sometimes, you know, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm tired and I don't want to put that one on. <laughs> I'll listen to it <laughs> later, you know, when I've, when I've had some rest or other things just because it's, it's hard yeah. to keep up. There's so much great information in it, but yeah, it's just your brain just isn't always uh, prepared for it.
1: Right. So, Uh, You've been running this podcast for over a year now, and it helps people understand how AI is going to affect their lives uh, in a direct and informed way. Uh, From what you've heard, what is the biggest misconception about AI, either from the media or from the popular consciousness that needs to be corrected?
0: So jobs is a repeated issue that comes up all the time with people talking about automation, and what that's going to mean for for the future of work and for joblessness and yeah you know um Gosh, what Martin Ford? Uh, he he wrote a book called *The Rise of the Machines* uh, a few years ago, and he kind of paints this dystopian future of this oligarchy that's going to be taking over because they've invented artificial intelligence technologies that have displaced all the workers, and so you have this small cadre that has all the wealth, and everybody else has no jobs, so they have no, so they're just living in abject poverty. Um, And it's just, economically, that just doesn't really work out. I mean, who are these super wealthy oligarchs going to be selling their products to? You know, how is that going to work? Are they just going to be, you know, living on Mount Olympus, essentially, amongst themselves and, you (laughs) know, watching the peasants below? similar
1: to, like, you know, uh, kind of the Marxist theory that a capital is going to continue to accumulate, you know, to a small group of people? Yeah, yeah. It sounds very rehashed a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's
0: very, very similar idea, except in this case, it, it's really more around this uh, technology aspect that it's just going to continue to accumulate and everybody's going to be at this substi- uh basically destitute as a result of what this technology is going to do because they took our jobs, you know, and uh, it's just something that that we we, we bring up quite a bit and we talk about a lot because I think there are just a whole host of misunderstandings around this topic and what automation actually does for an economy and what it does for your standard of living.
1: Do you find that people are worried about their job in particular or are they more worried about, well, something's going to happen and... A lot of other people are going to be out of work, and that's going to cause our society problem. Or do you see people who are actually worried about their particular job?
0: I think it will depend industry to industry, um, but by and large, from what I've read and what I, the people I've talked to and come across is that uh, most people tend to be worried about what's going to happen to just other people out there, maybe nobody in in particular, they just, they talk about, uh, oh yeah, it's going to happen and all these people are going to be out of work, but they never, most people don't see it as affecting themselves. Now, the few people that I've talked to that do see, okay, this might impact me, are those who are working on the assembly lines or kind of those more blue collar works or workers where automation has displaced a lot of work. Um, But, you know, most of the people I encounter are are kind of in that, that first category I mentioned.
1: It's interesting. I feel like the people who kind of say, "Oh, a machine'll never be able to do what I do," are the ones where then I get start I flip and I become a little more skeptical. I'm like, "Wait a minute, there are definitely some aspects of what you do uh that a machine can do." Absolutely. But I I tend to agree that um you know, there is <laughs> people tend to think it's always some other guy that uh, is gonna lose their job it's not it's it's not me yeah um, which is sort of interesting if it's nobody in particular if it's always someone else then it's like where's the where's the issue going to be
0: yeah and one of the things too that we we try to stress a lot is people talk about jobs but that's really not what gets automated it's more tasks you know the parts of your job that um, you might do. So whether it's, you know, checking for emails or transactions or, you know, whatever it is that makes your job, you have a lot of little tasks that actually combine that job. And those tasks are what tend to get automated rather than an entire job, unless your job is just basically one task. Uh, and so I think it's more accurate to actually think about the tasks that are going to be automated and you can start to see those coming. And once those start to occur, you know, it's always important to try to, uh, uh, you, you know, leverage that automation to free up your time to work on some other areas, uh, or to expand your responsibilities or your role, uh, because now you have you have some leverage, and that can help you to be kind of this evergreen um, person working in your company.
1: Yeah, I have I have two points to make on that. Uh, first, um, one podcast I listened to is uh, Tech Twenty Twenty Five with Charlie Oliver, and she mm-hmm. was talking to someone a couple months ago about. Um, the the trucking industry and yeah. the idea that there's going to be self-driving trucks. And I, there are a couple of things that I didn't know uh, when I listened to that. One is that, you know, <laughs> we need a lot of truckers right now and there are very few people who are coming into the workforce who are interested in that. You know, what? most of the people who are doing that work are older, near retirement. So in the short term, it almost seems like they have a crisis of, you know, a labor shortage. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the long term, Term it. It's like their conversation went into oh, there's so much opportunity for figuring out. Okay, like you know, maybe the truck will drive itself for the most part. Um, you can go longer distances. Um, are there's it? You're still going to have people in the trucks for the time being. You know, what sort of jobs are they going to do uh, while they're in the truck? Like you know, they could get on their laptop and start you know start doing other things, inventory checks or real time. I don't know, uh, real time rerouting or I, I, I don't know, whatever ideas they have. And then, you know, ultimately in several decades when they don't want someone in every truck, then those jobs will just move from the truck to the office.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure precisely what they what they would be doing in the truck. But you, you, one thing when yeah. you talk about like an employer, they always have more stuff to do. <laughs> there's always <Right. laughs> something else to, be done. and they always want more resources to do that. So if people are having seen that we're able to automate some tasks or some parts of your job and that frees up time, you know your boss probably has other stuff for you to go work on if you want, and you just have to put up your hand and go ask. And it's, it's something that I've seen, you know I work in a in a large fortune fifty company, and you know we we see it all the time. As soon as we get a little bit of space over here, a manager's quick to say, "Hey, I see that, you know you got twenty percent of your time now." go do, can we work on this now? Okay, can we work on, th- there's always something new, always something happening and so many opportunities. It kind of comes back to this whole idea when we talk about this joblessness and automation is the uh, the lump of labor fallacy, which is the idea that there's only a fixed amount of work to be done in an economy. And then once that's done, well, there's no more work left. And I think that's where a lot of these, you know, mass unemployment fears come from. And it's just not borne out by historical evidence and or, or you know, your day-to-day evidence, really.
1: So I think um, the one not objection, but uh, maybe. Well, one point in that is people are going to have to be flexible. Like, if they're used to doing a particular task, uh, they have to be in the mindset. And most, you know, software engineers are in this mindset is like, well, one day, hopefully, this will be automated, and then I'll be on to the next thing. But uh, maybe some people would be uncomfortable with that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, some people I think are resistant to change, and you, there, there is still that idea in a lot of places of, you know, working in, in a job and keeping that job until retirement. And, uh, but, I, but I think that that's really a, a small minority of people. Uh, that most people have been um, exposed to a lot of the disruption that's occurred over the past 20, 30 years that they realize that, okay, you know, whether I like want to change or not, I need to change and I need to adapt. And, you know, what they always say about mother being or the uh, necessity being the mother of all invention, or, you know, I guess in this case, your human reinvention, uh, to be able to try to add new skills and other things so that you can continue to, to compete and survive and uh, and adapt.
1: Okay, yeah. So I want to cover multiple time spans with you today. Um, how to think about AI in the short term first, and then we'll talk about uh, more long term stuff. Um, in the short term, a lot of people I talk to are worried about, you know, wh- or, or they're asking me, you know, what skills should I work on? How do I break in? Or what industry should I invest in? So let's start with with skills and industry. Uh, what use cases for? artificial intelligence have a lot of promise and opportunity right now as you see it. So the
0: big advances that we've seen from AI really come from the image recognition and the natural language processing side of things. As as you're probably aware, you know, with this big deep learning advent that's come out there, the 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 big initial Uh, use cases were around like image nets and training these things to be able to identify and tag all the stuff or or now through google translate or you know you've got an alexa in your room or something like that okay good yeah yeah, i mean as as we've (laughs)
1: talked about (laughs) yeah i I always spell it out when i'm i'm talking because i'm afraid of it um (laughs) i i mean we we've experimented with this stuff at foursquare a lot we've done image recognition and all the photos that are coming in and we do a lot of natural language processing. I mean, right now the NLP stuff is the stuff that's made it into the app as, um, the show that's coming out tomorrow with, um, Chris Conception, uh, we're going to talk about that. Um, so, uh, so yes, we are very familiar with that.
0: Yeah. And and there, there are tons of use cases, you know, especially like low hanging fruit around these t- types of areas so for example um, if you're in a manufacturing environment think about how some of these uh, image recognition systems can be used for inspections for checking pipes or um, cords see if they're frayed or other things like that especially in places that are hard to get to hard to reach or that have to be regularly inspected but may pose a, a hazard or, or a danger to a human to go in you know there's there are a lot of opportunities for using maybe some robotics combined with some of this image recognition classification technology to go go into these these uh, areas these confined spaces and other things and see okay, can we find a crack or can we just ensure that everything's okay um, for, our, for our usual inspection? There's a big opportunity and that's going to be huge for a lot of people because that's going to help cut down on workplace injuries and accidents and uh, hopefully make things just more, run more efficiently because you can start to um, maybe not fully automate all these because sometimes, you know, maybe moving that robot or that drone around, uh, you don't have a, a specific flight pattern, but you can at least uh, send something in there to, to go and identify this stuff for you on your own. Um, so that's one one probably um, more uh, low hanging fruit or, or easier use case where you can take some of these APIs uh, off the shelf. You, may, you know, train them on some images that you have, assuming that you have the data of that area, or you can maybe generate it actually using some GANs or something along those lines to see what the, you know these cracks or these this corrosion issues might look like, uh, and then be able to go and put that into play.
1: Yeah, this is uh, starting to happen now. I think. Oh God, I don't remember. I was in. <sighs> I remember some situation where I was seeing uh, image recognition was being used to sort um, a certain product in terms of uh, defective or not, or mm-hmm. maybe it was sorting, maybe it was sorting some kind of a fruits or something. I don't remember what it was, but was it the they, cucumber? It's definitely. I don't think it was the cucumber machine, but tell me about the <laughs> cucumber machine. So,
0: so this was something where... Um... Oh, no,
1: I think it was a cocoa bean machine. I think cocoa I bean. went to a chocolate uh, factory down here in Red Hook. That's what it was. Oh,
0: okay. Okay. Well, well the, yeah. the cucumbers, it, it's something very similar. I think it was a Japanese farmer was uh, trying to sort their their cucumbers basically on on quality because you get a better um, price at the market with a certain you know aesthetically pleasing cucumbers apparently and uh, I'm not sure about how you segment the cucumber market but <laughs> you know they, they they were able to figure out so that they could actually classify it and then sort the cucumbers um, just by getting a few tensorflow apis and having something run uh, automatically and then put that into their into their um, Conveyor belts to to be able to sort things out. So yeah, that's a that's one case where you can you can try to to work on this image classification recognition.
1: Wait, so they were sorting for um how aesthetically pleasing the cucumber is. How do you define? it, is it like, so? I could see that you're you know sort by you know whether it's the the weight or the size or whatever, how much cucumber you're getting. But what exactly? That this could be something where there's a whole bunch of features yeah. where. It's just like, is somebody going to see that on the shelf and be like, yep, I'm going to pick that one?
0: Yeah, because, you know, you got to go through and manually label all of these things, too, right? So that's basically where you, you start. You have these photos. You have to label them and determine whether this is, you know, a good high-quality cucumber or a, a low quality cucumber or just see know, which ones people actually buy. Yeah. And I think that they have some ideas about, you know, certain sizes. You don't want it under a certain size or you want them to be more straight or less bendy, whatever it is, smoother. I don't know all the details. I'm not a cucumber expert, but <laughs> it's one of the early examples I had seen for for agriculture and produce and how they kind of uh, can use some of this type of classification to, to help their, they, them go to market. Yeah.
1: Well, th- there's a lot of that. There's a lot of agricultural, um, you know, applications, which is interesting to me because it's something that I don't know about, uh, so much Mm -hmm. having not, you know, been on a farm, but, you know, there's one company that has, you know, whatever billions of pictures of heads of lettuce or something like that, and can determine, you know, which ones are better, which ones are worse, what, you know, uh, you know, what treatments to give different, different crops, all that stuff is, is going on right now. Um, so, um, I have here. Maybe we can make a few predictions. Um, well, a good one in this area would be the whole self-driving car thing, which I know that you've been um, you've been talking about or covering a little bit on your program. Um, what What do you think is the timeline on that? Because that's been a, a source of a lot of speculation and, you know, fear. Versus hype over the last few years.
0: Yeah. So let's add to the speculation here. So it's a,
1: <laughs> sure.
0: no, it's, um, it's tough to say because I mean, Elon Musk, I think back in 2015, he said that they were going to have it out by 2018 for Tesla. Yeah. And that doesn't look like it's going to happen.
1: It's the same thing with all these space companies when they're like, we're going to get, you know, people out into space, uh, yeah. for the next, like in, in two years and we're always seems to be two years away. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And I think uh, you had introduced me to the heuristic of saying, like, the five to 10 years is far enough that uh, <laughs> it's uh, nobody's going to hold your feet to the. F- feet to the fire, but it may happen, you know, that kind of thing where you're just really hedging your bets. Um, so, right, so we'll right. try to avoid that a little bit, but, uh, I mean, I think it's going to be a couple of years still Uber has, uh, just, I think a couple weeks ago announced that they're going to suspend their driving through the summer, hopefully re- renew it or, uh, at the end of the summer, cause they're trying to retrain some of their uh, technicians who are out there in Pittsburgh and in Arizona following the accident that they had back in March. Um, We haven't really seen a whole lot out of Waymo over the past couple of months uh, since they had um, uh, for for new accomplishments. Um, Tesla still hasn't come up with stuff. I mean, I'm starting to think that self-driving cars might be taking a little bit longer than uh, most people had initially um, estimated and and myself included with that. I thought, you know, by the end of 2020, we'd probably have have these out there, you know, back in 2015 when I was thinking about this. But now I'm thinking it might be more into the mid, um, you know, 20. 23 2024 maybe uh which I, I i wish i could be more optimistic but it seems like there just seem there tend to be these uh, uh issues that continue to pop up and pop up and it just never quite gets there but i'm not super close to the industry myself so it's just a uh, kind of the feeling that i get from reading up on it reading a lot of the articles and and talking to some of the people who are who are working a little bit more closely
1: having been watching this for several years it does seem to me that like there is real progress mm-hmm. being made it's not like you know. It's not like empty promises. And I think if if it does end up being commercialized, you have to go through this period where there are crashes. Yeah, and people have to figure out what to do, and um, so it, it almost seems like the current period that we're in is um, is inevitable in in some ways. I had a timeline that I wrote out on that. I don't. I, yeah, I think probably. I mean, I'm. I guess maybe a little more pessimistic than you, but I'm. I'm like very optimistic that it'll happen i just think like you know i I think maybe a 10 i'm more on like the 10-year plan
0: (laughs) matter of time but it's just yeah when is when is the time going to be and uh, it's it's tough to really say because you've had rumblings coming out of congress about regulation uh and which is likely going to slow down progress if they start to get involved in a lot of these um you know, there's been quite a bit of backlash against Uber uh, for for the accident, obviously. Um, you know, that's an accident that really shouldn't have happened uh, because as right. uh, as this uh, lady was crossing, I mean, it was completely dark. A human would have run her over. Mm-hmm. I, I, I promise you, like if you watch the video, there's no way you would have yeah. avoided that. But at the same time, their LIDAR and their sensors were picking up, picking her up, but they weren't able to identify it. And so it just continued to go forward without stopping until it was too late. Um, and so the technology should have, should have, uh, uh notified her or notified the uh, driver and made the stop, um, automatically. But, you know, with all the stuff that's, that's been occurring, y- you wonder if these companies are going to start to try to maybe slow down. And, and we're seeing that there's, they're, they're taking some stuff off the road to try to work on some things in the background and that's, you know, making it safer. Um, but I think it might slow down a little bit of the, uh, the, the, the progress of it, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, If you think about it, you know, a human might, you know, a human might make a mistake on the road like that. And then a few years later, another human in another city will make the exact same mistake. But at least in this case, you know, the mistake can be fixed in software and can be, um, you know, uh, spread out throughout the entire system. So in other words, once this, once uh, a car makes a, a, a horrible mistake like this, as horrible as it is, it's, um, you can get a fix for it that um, then gets installed in every car. And so if they go a little slow and sort of start to see where the problems are before those problems cause um, bigger accidents than they otherwise would have by going fast, then ultimately when they do get there, Maybe they'll get stronger for it.
0: Yeah. And that's the hope is that it's going to be going to improve things in the long run. And one of the things that's that's tough when you talk to people who are you know maybe outside this area, just ask the kind of men on the street about self-driving cars and they hear about these these uh, accidents. And, you know, they're very concerned about about safety, obviously, as, as I think that they should be. But um, and even even when you hear what's coming out of Washington and some of these regulatory agencies is it, it does become a little bit frustrating because if these are able to show say maybe a five percent reduction in accidents say today you know for example i don't know what the numbers would look like but yeah let's say let's say that we got a five percent overall reduction in accidents there are about 35 000 to forty thousand deaths on u.s highways a year i mean a five percent reduction um in 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 deaths i mean that's that's saving lives out there i mean they're still not one hundred percent safe. And I think that's one of the difficulties that they're running into is that these are billed as being safer, which they will be. But people are kind of expecting this this uh, uh, large you know step forward in safety, maybe not this kind of incremental or gradual move forward, which uh, you know, again, Every accident is super high profile, and so it, it, it kind of tarnishes it, and people are more likely and more more comfortable trusting themselves rather than than a machine, even if it is say five percent safer or ten or percent or, or more so just because it has had some failures in the past.
1: yeah, I understand the impulse to want to have more control mm-hmm. even if it is um, even if it's you know not as safe you know statistically um, i I think I can understand that. Um, even though I'd be happy to get into a, a self-driving car to say I do not, I'm the only person who doesn't trust myself on the road. <laughs> what do they say? Like everyone thinks that they're a, above, above average, average yeah. driver. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I know I'm below average because first of all, I don't drive uh, very often. <laughs> and when I do now, fortunately I've been able to avoid an accident because I'm so, you know, uh, I'm 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 so cautious when I do get behind the wheel but uh, you know it's still because I'm scared to death every time I do um, <laughs> okay uh, all right so now on to the investment side I know that you covered back in 2017 uh, some companies that seem to have an awfully high valuation without a proven product so this suggests that we may be at the peak of the hype cycle for AI uh, but you could never be sure and so I hate to be all Uh, go all Game of Thrones on you, but is AI Winter coming? And first, let's define AI Winter because that's a term that a lot of AI researchers and entrepreneurs know about, but maybe not the general audience.
0: Yeah. So AI Winter is something that came about um, after the artificial intelligence research community saw this massive evaporation of funds that came their way. And actually, we did a podcast on this topic, exact topic, a a couple of weeks ago. Um, And it happened, I think, first time in the uh, '60s, and then again uh, '70s and '80s, where, or sorry, in, in the '80s up until the '90s, where the funding, which was primarily driven by the U.S. government, um, by DARPA and, and uh, some of these other uh, U.S. agencies, they were putting a lot of money into it, but then the results just didn't really quite match up with the hype. So one of the, the early results that they were looking at was uh, translation from. Uh, Russian to English Um, and this has kind of led about uh, precipitated the first AI winter Um, and you can think back in the 60s cold war this was a huge huge deal there were some early results that said okay we can actually translate this using AI but it stalled out pretty darn quickly and once that happened some of the funding started to dry up and then um, there were some additional breakthroughs that happened kind of behind closed doors in the background with with uh, that reduced amount of funding uh, and that led to the advent of say like of these expert systems and other things that came about in the 80s and into the 90s and then when those found were shown to be more brittle um, a lot of the funding then dried up again. So they would get these sort of peaks and these valleys between getting a lot of the funding. It was really driven by government spending more than, more than anything else. And so a lot of people are concerned about another AI winter coming in the future uh, because of all the hype that's occurred around the, around the technology. I mean, you see it everywhere. You see it, like, like you said, we talked about some of these VC funds and, and others that are going out there and um, putting money into these startups without any product that have been going around going on for quite some time. Um, and they have no market, no, no revenue, nothing like that. And they're getting billion dollar valuations uh, because of their AI technology, basically. And you just think, wow, is this another bubble? And I think a lot of the signs point to, yeah, this is another big bubble, and it could lead to uh, this uh, contraction of funding for researchers in the the near term um, if if the bubble winds up popping and the uh, third AI winter is basically what what would uh, result.
1: Do you think there are any opportunities that present itself during the uh, AI winter?
0: Yeah, um definitely there I mean there are there are opportunities in any market, you know, whether you're going up or whether you're going down. Um you can find stuff. It's just going to be a lot harder to to raise the raise the funds and other things, but it tends to be tends to be good for for the um markets and the industries actually when they kind of go through these uh, contractions because they have to really double down on their on their value proposition and their use case um rather than uh you know thinking about these these big grand ideas but they can they really need to focus more on what kind of value can they deliver how is that going to move the bottom line and how how is it going to actually benefit their their customers as as they go out to market so it's it's basically a correction as a lot of this these uh the funds have to be redirected to other areas of the economy um a- after this
1: right it's interesting that you mentioned you know uh russian translation during the Cold War in the 1960s it, it didn't pan out in the, in the way that it, it did because the technology wasn't there yet but like imagine you know imagine if I came you know if I uh, you know got a grant in the 60s and I came back to them and I, I presented uh, you know hey I present to you Google Translate they would have been like holy crap I would have paid an extra trillion dollars for this you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's just not feasible to do it at that time.
0: Yeah, and you know it takes time for this stuff so, to develop, and what we what we're seeing now versus previous forms of AI is really this data driven artificial intelligence, um, which which represents kind of yeah. So with the explosion of the Internet and all this other stuff that we have um, and the massive computing power, you know, the the, the continue uh, continued march of Moore's law, which is starting to break down, actually has been for, for a couple of years now. But um, we have more data, we have more com- uh, computational space and more of it's available, um, as well as some algorithmic breakthroughs as well. But still, even this deep learning stuff is coming is, is still been around for a little while. It's just we haven't had the data to be able to feed these algorithms. Uh, you know, We haven't had Google-sized data, et cetera, or, or Amazon or Facebook uh, to be able to make this stuff uh, work because all these techniques uh, for coming from deep learning are very data-hungry. And so even if you were able to take these same techniques and the same compute power, you know, two of those three aspects that we need, uh, back to the 60s, you probably still wouldn't be able to make it work just because you wouldn't have as much labeled Use cases in order to make it to, to to get something off the ground, so you can get these effective translation systems.
1: Yeah, right. Do you think that? Um, do you think that the whole uh, idea of data-driven AI, in other words, it doesn't. I mean, it does matter what algorithm we use, but what's important is we have a whole lot of data. Uh, but you've mentioned that you know uh, human beings can learn with much fewer data. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some algorithms you have out there that learn with you know, try to try to attempt to learn with less data. Um, do you think there's a possibility of moving towards, um, you know, uh, research and how do you learn from less data or is it going to, you know, with the Internet of Things, just be hypercharged into, um, into okay, now now we want to go to the next order of magnitude. I mean, I guess I'm just leaving that as an open question. It could go either way.
0: I, there are people who are actively working on trying to reduce the amount of data that they need to feed these algorithms, uh, because it does become very valuable if you can say learn from ten examples instead of ten thousand or a hundred thousand examples, uh, because there are some some data points that are just very difficult to acquire, or maybe you're trying to predict rare events that might not occur very often. So there's mm. a ton of value in trying to reduce that as much as possible. Oh, that's
1: very yeah relevant to what I'm doing now. I'm trying to vi- you know predict visits. You know to to chains. that's you know yeah. <laughs> if i predict predict your visit to a taco bell well what am i gonna? <laughs> i don't have that many examples yeah
0: uh, i mean i was working with uh somebody earlier this week down in the houston area and we were talking about how to do some of this predictive maintenance type of work and they have you know four examples of uh you know say a pump and they've got they've had you know five failures in ten years and they're trying to predict it it's They've got tons of data because you know it's sampling at you know whatever sixty hertz or or whatever the sample rate is for the temperature for the vibration measurements et cetera um so even if you have all that data but you only have five examples that you're trying to learn from you know it becomes tough to try to predict this in advance,
1: yeah, yeah, I found that very early on that uh scarce data is a thing that uh comes up over and over again i mean there are a lot of situations where you have you know data is cheap i mean some of the like character recognition, I think you know the, the the data is cheap to get more examples of the letter yeah. A, but in a lot of real world cases, uh, you have um, you have a, a, a scarcity of the of the label that you're trying to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so now we get to the fun part, and that's talking about the long term. Uh, when we think about artificial intelligence, people like to project. Uh, to an end game, you know where is this all leading? So some people suggest that we 're heading for a singularity around the middle of the century, followed by an out of control super intelligence that emerges from a single point, like some lab somewhere, and then it surpasses and completely replaces all life on earth, and we 're all of a sudden you know irrelevant and On the other end of the X spectrum, there are people who think that well, you know even just general intelligence isn 't impossible, and we 're just going to be stuck with kind of learning better and better na- narrow AI systems. And it'll get a little better in 50 years, but that's kind of the best that we can expect. So I guess my question is on a, and I think you've mentioned both sides of the argument on your your show. And so I, I guess I want to ask you on a scale of one to 10 where one is you know narrow AI only, and 10 is super intelligence wipes us all out <laughs> uh, with perfect information. Uh, where do you fall?
0: Yeah, I'll put myself at like a three on that scale. Maybe <laughs> interesting. I, I, I'm not concerned okay. about the super intelligent side of things at all, but I think that you know we are going to get some good advances through the narrow AI space, um, and I'm. I, I don't really have a super tight, airtight argument against AGI. I've been thinking about it for a while. Um, but I, I think there are a lot of things that you can point to. For example, um, when you think about intelligence. So Nick Bostrom is uh, over at Oxford. He wrote this book called uh, Super a few years back. And it, it's kind of been the main... Um, siren for this this super intelligence explosion and the way that he vi- he visualizes intelligence is really on this single axis scale um you know uh that it's just going to be able to continuously increase um without bound without limits in this in this single dimension of just intelligence and i don't think that actually is accurate so when you think about intelligence in general I think there are multiple types of intelligences. You know, there there's this sort of computational intelligence. You know, when you talk to people, there there's emotional intelligence. When you look at the animals around, they have different types of intelligence in order to adapt. So, first, I think that there are you know different types of intelligence that can be um, used or, or leveraged, and and not really this kind of single overall number that we can we can qualify or quantify this as. And the other thing too is this type of runaway exponential growth. I'm not sure if that's even if that's even plausible uh to to think about it uh as being this sort of limitless uh intelligence even if it was on the single dimension um that that can continue without bound
1: so i mean let's make a distinction here between super and general intelligence there is a difference right yeah between just Yeah,
0: Yeah. so like, when you talk about um, artificial general intelligence versus this superintelligence, right? Is that the the distinction?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: so um, people, when they think about it, oftentimes conflate the two. Uh, So the superintelligence is really that runaway of artificial general intelligence, where this AGI is this idea of basically um, being able to replicate human intelligence in in silicon. Uh, So kind of this... All-purpose learning algorithm, and there's debate even over that. Like, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure that humans are this all-purpose learning <laughs> algorithm or or anything like that uh, to, to begin with. But um, that's kind of what most people have in mind. They tend to anthropomorphize it and think about uh, humans just being able to do it more and more um, in this. But
1: API couldn't you say it's like a? I mean you know, there's some things are more general and some things are more specific and maybe it's a sliding scale. And so what we call general is somewhere in the vicinity of what a human can do. Sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and I think that's what most people have in mind when, when they, when they talk about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so our, so you're kind of, it sounds like, tell me if you're, if, if, if I'm wrong that on AGI, you're kind of a maybe and on superintelligence you're a, a Probably not,
0: yeah, yeah, I think that that would classify it I, I think that you can get um you know these these narrow AI systems to work together in concert potentially in the future uh you can start to replicate some human behavior in, in a lot of these in in these areas, um, uh, but I don't ever see this kind of runaway super intelligence i mean there 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 are limits on on stuff, be it physical limits, energy limits, you know whatever it is. we don't know what, that, sure. what that's going to take or what that's gonna look like if you uh, you know, if you're going to have something that's going to replicate or or be this, you know, um, I mean, it, it's tough because you want to kind of quantify this stuff. But I don't, even, you, know, you know, say uh, something with 2,000 IQ points or 20,000 or something like that. Um, you know, right. how much? What what kind of resources is that going to require? Is that even going to be something that that is feasible, uh, given the the energy available to it? I,
1: One of the examples that that you gave, uh, on your program, which which really hit home, like, um. To me, described very well how different uh, the the thought process, if you can call it a thought process, than these machines are, is the, the Go machine mm-hmm. that learned to beat humans on a Go board, which is 19 by 19, but when it changed to a 20 by 20 board, it just doesn't know what to do.
0: Yeah, essentially that's that's the case. So,
1: I mean, that's crazy to me because a human masters go, you could think, okay, if I moved to a 20 by 20 board or even chess or whatever, I add an extra row, I still kind of know how to play. Maybe I'm not, you know, you know, I'll still, you know, I still have to adjust a little bit, but um, it, it, that, that should be an easy problem. And it's amazing. Even like a deep learned, you know, super powerful system can't handle something simple like that, which tells me there's still like some, some of what we would call brittleness from the human experience side.
0: Absolutely. And that's, that's really the state of where this technology is today is it it is very brittle. If you start to have um, basically this kind of non-stationary domain uh, or, you know, the, the probability distribution or the environment that it's operating in starts to change, then it becomes very, very difficult to generalize. And, you know, this is another reason why um, the self-driving cars I think are taking longer than, than anticipated is because there, there's, there's so many more, um, edge cases and uh, so much more variety out there than people um, might realize at first because it's easy for us to process that like you said you can add another row to your chessboard and it's going to be a little bit of a wonky game but you're able to deal with it just like you can drive in london you know on the left hand side and it's
1: like if i change the rules on what the queen can do it's like okay well some of the things that you know maybe some of my instincts might be off but you know I'll I'll deal with it. I could still play a decent game of chess. Yeah. Whereas
0: these systems would have to entirely relearn it and say, okay, you know, there might be some transfer learning that could take place, but by and large, they would have to, you know, try to do it from scratch.
1: Right. So that, to me, seems like a key difference, and it's still, it's, it's not necessarily something you could quantify, but it seems like evidence that we're still doing narrow learning and not general learning. Yeah,
0: exactly. And and again this is where we come back where you know I'm like I'm kind of 50/50 on where this um, general intelligence could could actually occur.
1: Yeah. Well, that'll I'm sure there'll be room for lots of fascinating discussions as we see things play out, you know, even over the next uh, few years. Um, all right, so I do want to ask you a little bit about your uh, one of your fields of research which is reinforcement learning. I was thinking about that that we would do a, a whole show on at some point, but you know, my experience in machine learning is I'm less familiar with this because I'm more versed in sort of traditional supervised and unsupervised learning. So is there an easy kind of definition of reinforcement learning that you can give just to give people a little taste and then maybe we'll talk about it in a future show? Yeah.
0: So reinforcement learning is really about training an agent to act in an environment and to learn from that sort of feedback. So when you think about unsupervised learning, you're trying to understand patterns within the data, right? Doing some clustering algorithms or something like that. Supervised learning, you're trying to learn from this labeled data. Uh, and trying to you know uh, be able to accurately predict w- what's going to happen um, when stuff comes in. Now reinforcement learning, you don't have any labels. you just basically have an agent that starts to try to learn how to play a game. So take go, for example, this was trained through reinforcement learning. Um, there was some supervised learning in the early iterations but um, for alpha for Alpha go, they basically just said, okay, here, here's some go games. Make some moves, and you play against another version, another AI version of yourself. You know, copies, and then you find out what happens at the end when you win. If you win, you get a signal of you know positive one, so you get a, a good reward. If you lose, negative one, and the idea is to be able to try to change it so that you can learn to get that signal more and more um, to maximize that to to optimize for getting that that positive reward signal. And so that's kind of the basic. So it sounds idea like. Yes,
1: yeah, so it sounds like instead of instead of labeled data where you're trying to predict the labels you're you're sort of trying to take one step back and try to figure out how do you get that ultimate reward but there could be some you know um, um what am i thinking like some 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 side things that you need to focus on before you get that reward so it's almost like you know running a business or something where you you know you have to be like okay you know, my goal is to is to earn profit, but you know, first I have to I don't know sweep the floor or hire someone or something like that. So so it sounds like in reinforcement learning, do you have to figure out what the sub goals are? So you could,
0: the learn strategies uh, along those lines. So um, for example, you know, playing with this AlphaGo thing um, when Google DeepMind had rolled it out against Lee Sedol. There was a uh, move. I think it was in the second game where it had made that nobody had anticipated it at all. Like it was playing at a very high level. Um, you know, it was playing against a, a 18-time world champion Go player in this very complex game, much more complex than chess, uh, as far as you know, your your number of spaces that or number, uh, search space and number of actions that you can actually take. Um, right. And it made this it made this move that people just didn't anticipate. It had like a one in 10,000 uh, probability of a human actually making that move is what it had calculated. Mm. And it chose to go here and just completely threw everybody off. And it became the beautiful move uh, <laughs> because it found this kind of new strategy, this new way of playing that people, even in the 3000 year history of Go, hadn't explored before. Um, so in that sense, yeah, you find these different strategies, and these different ways of um, taking actions in order to get that reward, you know, so if it's, a, if it's running a business or whatever, you know, getting your profit. But, you know, even there, the business, it becomes very difficult because the action space, the search space is so huge, you know, we're not ready for, <laughs> for applying reinforcement learning to that kind of stuff. You got to keep it a little bit more more confined um, to something that's, that's well-defined. And that's what makes it interesting, um, but also challenging. And why you don't have a whole lot of uh, industrial applications for reinforcement learning is because you, you really do need a lot of data uh, you typically need to learn from simulate simulators or something like that, and um, because it's just it's hard to to narrow down um, into those those narrow areas of a task to be able to train something like this.
1: Now, if if you have a reinforcement learning system playing Go, um, does it get feedback before the game is over? Like, for example, um, midway through the game, does it know? oh man, some of these decisions I made were pretty bad. Maybe I should change my strategy because now I'm in a pretty bad situation. Or does it not know whether it's a, in a bad situation because it doesn't know whether it's it's won yet or not? In other words, can it only learn until it gets the final reward? And is that why you need to play so many games? Or can you somehow uh, you know, have it learn midway? Well,
0: if it doesn't have a signal coming back, Um, so that, that reward signal, which is just a scalar one or zero in this case at the end, it doesn't really have anything to learn off of, you know, you don't have any way to update your weights until you actually, you get a, get a value. So in the go case, you really have to do it kind of at the end. And then do, run your backprop. But there are other environments that uh, you know, you might be able to get. You'll, you'll get a, a reward every step, every time step, every iteration that you take. So, for example, um, OpenAI, which is one of the groups uh, that uh, does a lot of research on this, that's sponsored by Elon Musk and Peter Thiel and others. Uh, they have this uh, OpenAI gym environment uh, with Atari games and other things that you can play with. It. So you can actually take some of these reinforcement learning algorithms and environments and play with them. So there might be some that you get a uh, reward every step. And in that case, you can continue, you can run, say, like a n end step actor critic algorithm or something like that, where you're um, updating online. And so you have a you have these different algorithms that are online learners. So they'll learn continuously as they go, such as Q learning or other things like that. And then you have these others that are considered, you know, like Monte Carlo uh, algorithms, which will only update at the very end of the the uh, episode or the game or whatever you're, you're trying to do.
1: So, what are the applications that you look at specifically for reinforcement learning?
0: So, for my research, I'm primarily focused on how do we use this type of technology in um, manufacturing environments. So, um, in uh, particularly with uh, the scheduling problems because um, this is a combinatorial optimization problem um, that you wind up running into and you're trying to maximize a certain reward um, in, in your reward function, however you may define that, um, be it, it yeah.
1: And way too many uh, options for brute force. Yeah,
0: exactly. And so there are optimization algorithms that are out there. Um, so you can model this as like an MILP, a mixed integer linear program, or something like that, uh, to be able to um, get a, a global optimum. In, in depending on the solver and, and, and you know the the basically the ge- geometry of the of the problem that you're trying to deal with. Um, but I'm trying to see if if we can actually maybe use uh, deep reinforcement learning. Uh, in conjunction with this or you know, see where some of the trade-offs are in these areas because in a lot of cases, it's very useful if you can actually learn from some of the data. It's easier to set it up um, and if you have a lot of data, um, for, for some of these systems, um, maybe for like a control system application or something like that, where you might not be able to model, say, uh, everything that's happening inside the system, but you still want to be able to control it. You know, how do you, how do you uh, address that? You can't necessarily just, uh, put an a uh, model predictive controller on top of that because you don't know what's happening on the inside. So you got to oftentimes what happens are people will develop some heuristics or, uh, you know, be... Uh, tuning some knobs and some PID controllers or something like that, uh, in order to to control it. So maybe these data driven approaches, such as uh, deep reinforcement learning, can help to um, uh, uh, actually give us some better results in those areas. Or, or like I said, with my scheduling problems, um, you know, sometimes it's not very, it's not feasible to model a lot of these systems uh, at the detail that you would need in order to run an optimization algorithm on top of it? So can we get better results from using some of these other approaches? So that's kind of where where I'm I'm focused a little bit. And I could go into tons of detail on
1: that, but... (laughs) I'm sure. I'm sure. (laughs) Well, that's fascinating. I think we covered uh, a lot of ground today. I think this is going to be one of the... uh, Longer show notes <laughs> pages, if I could uh, say, may, p- perhaps the longest one I've ever done, uh, because we, we, we talked about, we referenced so many things today. So thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, just one more thing. Um, well, A, is there anything else that you'd like to add to, to what, what we've already said today? And also, um, where can people find your podcast and all of your other stuff on the internet?
0: Yes. Yeah, so you can uh, find my podcast at uh, artificiallyintelligent.tech. And, uh, I have a blog at data hubs.com with two B's, you know, a little play on plan words there of sorts. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, th- this is, I think a really fascinating and exciting area and I'm, I'm excited to see where, how it develops in time. And it's, it's fun to be a part of it, you know, on the podcasting side and to be able to keep an eye and, um. Uh, on some of these things to talk with people who are working in various areas and, and also just on the research side, I mean, there's stuff coming out all the time. It's tough to stay on top of. uh, You've got so many papers that you've always got to read. I I think I saw something some stat on archive that there are a few dozen papers just on uh, the deep learning area alone that come out on a daily basis. And I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you go through that? But um, it's very fast moving and it's very exciting. And so, yeah. Yeah. there's tons of stuff out there and uh, and resources. And if anybody's interested in learning more about any things that we discussed, you know, reach out to me. You can re- find us through our blog or on Twitter, uh, wherever wherever it may be.
1: All right, great. And I'll post all of that on our show notes page. Uh, thanks so much, Christian, for coming on the show today.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me, Max. It's been good.
1: All right, a few notes. All this talk about winning games of chess and Go and the fact that an algorithm you know, can't win on a 20-square board once it learns on a 19. You know, I've been thinking about that, and I wonder if there could be some kind of general competition for turn-based gameplay. Uh, the way it would work, you know, in my mind, is that you define some language or data structure through which to define the game. This means that you know you can define the rules for chess, you could define the rules for checkers, you could define the rules for Go, or let's say any like non-chance-based um, turn game, or maybe we can do a chance-based game as well. That way, you could have like you know backgammon or something like that, and then you know the people building the algorithms, the competitors they won't know what the games are beforehand. So in other words, it only learns about the game rules on site and has to kind of figure out beforehand how it's going to learn how to play a general game. And you know, when, when you come to the competition, there are various games to play. So I wonder if such an AI competition would produce a winner that's any good after a while. And you know, furthermore, I wonder if we'll get people thinking about how to make AI more generalized and this could be a good thing to fixing some of the brittleness of AI that we spoke about. And it's a problem in certain uh, situations. Um, it could also, you know, bring about the uh, the singularity. So who knows? Uh, good or bad? Um, just through playing games? I don't know. Maybe. All right. Also, I said I was on the 10-year plan for self-driving cars. I'm a little bit, you know, that's usually not what I've, consistent with what I've said in the past. So maybe I want to clarify that a little bit. I actually think that, the 2030s are going to be when people are going to start saying, you know what, I don't really need uh, traditional driving anymore. You know, not that traditional driving goes away immediately or something like that. You know, like linear TV doesn't go away or print media doesn't go away. That sticks around for a long time. But it'll kind of be seen as yesterday's technology. Um, And in terms of seeing a consumer launch for a self-driving car, I do think it'll be in the next decade so maybe I am on the the 5-year plan the 5 to 10-year plan as Christian said you know the one where uh you know that's the uh that that's the danger zone where you're like you're just putting it off just enough but we're so close after all and all of these companies like Waymo um and uh, and Uber and um and Tesla they're going to want to start to see a return on their multi-billion-dollar research investment no question about it and but they are patient You know, they wouldn't have made that investment otherwise. All right. The next couple of weeks look good. I'm going to talk to Chris Messina on conversational commerce. He knows what he's talking about. That's bots. We kind of talked about his article before and his appearance on another podcast, but now you'll get the details from him firsthand. Also, I want to talk about Twitter and their purge of the bots. You know, are they going to be successful? What are the pitfalls in uh, what they're trying to do and how is this all going to play out. So you're going to get my take next time. All right, thanks for listening. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you want to keep up, Remember to follow the local maximum on one of these platforms, and to follow my Twitter account at MaxVlog. Have a great week! Can it feel the power.